see the way things should be They made a mistake, sending me to jail Made a worse one, setting me free Should be free Cause I see what it is 
I say, can you read that? Only the letters, I don't know what it means. <laughs> Go on, read the letters. B's for Brooklyn, Y's for Yonkers, Q for Queens, H for Harlem, and X marks the Bronx. <laughs> Come on, get moving. Open that shirt, Mark, over there. Drinkers and I wiped to Max and I said, Hey man, I'm gonna blow your 
What's the crack? The crack? I'm in Chicago rehearsing a musical. So, oh, brilliant. Uh, it's coming to Broadway in March. Awesome. Yeah. And what's that all about? So, yeah, it's going. Well, it's set in 1863 in downtown New York, a place called The Five Points. Awesome. And it's about the Irish coming in after the, um, the quote-unquote potato famine and uh, meeting up with the free Amer African-American people who lived in The Five Points and of the two peoples getting together, sometimes having children, but more often than not, creating a new form of culture, new forms of dancing, new forms of music. Absolutely. And it all lasted. From, like the tap, it, lasted, it was it something that uh, became really big with the Irish, but we probably learned a lot of that from those black dancers. Yeah. Well, tap dancing was an amalgamation of Irish step dancing and Juba dancing. So uh, it all came from the two sources. And then, unfortunately, on July 13, 1863, it broke up. The draft riots happened. and Yeah, that was a pretty dark period in history. Yeah, 11 African-Americans got lynched. And the amalgamationists, the black and white couples, a lot of them left the city. And more often than not, they, because the children were brown, they melded into the African-American communities. And after a generation or so, everybody forgot about this moment. Um, but I wanted to bring it back. And basically to show that if it happened at the worst of times during the Civil War, uh, it can happen again. Yeah, I it's think it's, uh, I'm sorry. It's called Paradise Square. Awesome. That's a great name, by the way. Like painting That's Paradise Square. They had that phrase from Gangs in New York when uh, I think the one of the know-nothings, one of these Anglos who didn't want any, any Im immigrants coming to a city. And he says, let's paint Paradise Square with all yeah. these immigrants. And that's when they had all these battles between the dead rabbits and all these street gangs. Very interesting history. Well, fascinating. It, it's basically the same story, except we're dealing more with the African-American side, whereas uh, Scorsese dealt more with the with the gangs themselves, which tended to be, you know, Irish or nativist American. Yeah. And there was a power struggle going on at that time. Uh, so they, that got mixed up into draft riots too. But yeah, it's the same story, basically, or the same period, if not the same story. It's a really fascinating period. You know, I wanted to ask, uh, your amazing, absolutely amazing tune, The Day That They Set Jim Larkin Free. I think it was on the Elvis Murphy's Green Suede Shoe CD that came out in 2005. How important do you think is the legacy of the Irish Citizens Army in class struggle, class war in the year of 2021? How important is this battle, the battle for, you know, workers' rights? Well, in Ireland, it waxes and wanes when... Um, when there's a period of prosperity, everyone forgets about the, uh, the rights of workers. And when things are not going so well, then Larkin and Connolly come to the fore again. 
But there's always been a strain of it here in, uh, in America, and particularly in New York. Both Connolly and Larkin spent long periods here and were both mixed up with the Wobblies, the international workers of the world. So their legacy is still pretty strong. And uh, Larkin has tended to be more forgotten about because he didn't write as much. Connolly wrote, and uh, of course, Connolly had the early death, the martyr's death. So you tend to remember martyrs more than people who died in their beds of an old age. But I think Larkin was, was, as, uh, was as important a figure as Connolly. He was more popular than Connolly in Ireland and in the US. He was a very magnanimous man, big. He was from Liverpool. He had a very outgoing personality. Um, Connolly, whose grandson I knew really well, uh, not, uh, his name was uh, Heron. Uh, he was more, Connolly was more retiring, more of an intellectual, and didn't have the same charisma as Larkin. Uh, Connolly was also Scottish. Sometimes Scottish people tend to be more retiring, and Larkin was a big, brash Liverpool Irishman. But both of them started off with really humble beginnings. Um, their parents were really poor. Both of them left school at an early age to help support their families. So to me, they're the great figures. They're some of the great figures in Irish history, along with Michael Collins and people like that. But I got my inspirations more from them that a republic without economic liberty is just another state. Yeah, well said, well said. That's the way uh, Connolly and Larkin looked at it. So I, I was kind of, I wouldn't say I'm a follower of theirs, but I'm very influenced by them. They both also uh, had strong effect in my hometown of Wexford. Wexford is a very union town because it had three big foundries. So it was, uh, it was unionized and it was a huge battle. There were huge battles there to unionize. Um, in 1911, the people all got locked out for something like six months and, uh, a lot of starvation over it and a lot of fighting in the town. And even as I was growing up, it was, you could still know which side families had been on if you'd followed the church or if you'd followed Larkin and Connolly. Was that connected to the Dublin lockout, that particular yes. Wexford lockout? Yeah, it was a year before it. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, they... Wexford was very important because it had the three factories. Uh, so the first battles were fought there. The unions lost the battles because the people had to go back to work. It was all over forming unions. The bosses told them, if you're in a union, don't come to work. Yeah. And so most of them walked out and they had no way of feeding their children. Uh, and then after about six months of a hard winter, the, they went back to work and Connolly and Larkin went back to Dublin. And then the, um, the lockout of 1913 happened a year or two after. 
in Dublin. Yeah, guys like William Martin Murphy were a big part of starving everybody. You know, they were some real fat cats, as they'd say today. Yeah, well, the rumor always was that William Martin Murphy was responsible for Connolly being shot. Um, I don't know how true it is, but uh, they were bitter enemies. And the British weren't that keen on shooting Connolly, apparently, because he was injured. But also, yeah. he had been in the <clears throat> British Army before. So they, they kind of respected him for the stand he made. But uh, it is rumored that William Martin Murphy went to the British and said, now's the time to get rid of this guy. You got, you got your shot. We won't, we won't be bothered by him anymore. Larkin had already gone to the US at that point. So essentially the unions were, le were leaderless at that point. Tough times. A lot of people had to send their, their children overseas, I remember, to places like Liverpool, to England even. Hard times. Yeah, which the church, the church came out again. And I call it bitterness. Uh, the church was fearful of them being turned into Protestants. The people wanted their children to go overseas because they would get fed. They were going to the homes of fellow union members in Liverpool and around Britain. But the, uh, the church put the kibosh on it. That led to a lot of bitterness too. I bet. I wanted to say I was reading somewhere that Black 47, much like the Sex Pistols, had gained some considerable, considerable interest from the EMI label with the 1992 single Maria's Wedding slash Funky Kaylee released on EMI, I believe, like Green Suede Shoes on Mercury in 1996. Was that like being on such a huge label and only a few years since the, the band's birth in the year of 1989? What was that like to be all of a sudden in the spotlight and like, wow? We're on fucking EMI. Uh, it was kind of a whirlwind. We weren't that surprised by it, though. We were, we were drawing huge crowds everywhere, and we were in the papers continually. Uh, our strategy was to be very available and to have writers and record companies come to us so rather than playing rock clubs where you didn't really get paid much, we decided the strategy would be that we would pick a place. And at that time, it was Patty Riley's on 28th Street and 2nd Avenue. One of my and favorite pubs I lived in New York. That was a brilliant place to go always. Yeah. It was even more brilliant back then because people were – when we started playing there, celebrities started coming. And so you wouldn't know who you'd run into there. But people like Joe Strummer were there every night we played. And Absolute legend. Uh, Big yeah, inspiration for myself. But the idea was that you got to pay to come see Black 47. So we charged record companies to come in, just like everybody was charged the same amount of money the punters and the record companies, and even sometimes the uh, the writers, because the place was small. We used to jam 100 and 200 people into a place. So we were only supposed to hold 95 or something like that. 
But that was the strategy that we would play there and people would come to see us. So we were a big name instantly once we started getting that attention. It kind of just uh, steamrolled on. Uh, so all the record companies were there to see us. Um, but I liked DMI because of the people working there. It was a guy called Pete Ganbarg. He's now one of the heads of Atlantic. Uh, he was a young guy and he believed totally in the band. And I knew he would go to battle for us. Uh, and so eventually we signed with EMI and then we got Elliot Roberts as a manager. He was Neil Young's manager and uh, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan. So we were high flying and touring the country. And of course we were on all the big TV shows, Leno Letterman, O'Brien, uh, and of course on MTV. But we always had our feet on the ground. We always knew the whole thing is bullshit. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, we Without a had, doubt. We, many of us had had with that star making machine before. I used to think of like a sausage making machine. Once you got into a big company, then you were you were being fashioned in a way. Not that the the EMI guys were, were very good to us. They, a lot of people didn't know what to do with Black Forty Seven because what were we? Like, were we a punk band? Were we an Irish band? We were all the different styles of music. We were playing funk and reggae and. Uh, and we were really political. You know, nobody was political at the time. That was one of the reasons Chris Byrne and I formed the band. The clash had broken up. Marley was dead. There was a real wide opening for a band that, that songs. And we knew how to write political songs. As you can tell when you, if you listen back to other bands, if you're not born with the with the folk and the political style of writing, it can sound really lame, you know? It, it usually ends up with the writer of the song telling you, do this, do that, do the other thing. Whereas with political songs, you have to draw characters and let the people who are listening get the story themselves from the characters and then go and decide what they're gonna do about it, not, to have someone like, uh, you know, instructing you what to do. So we were, we were a really unusual band and we did exactly what we wanted to do. I was doing an interview about Black 47 the other day and I realized that, that we never took advice of any sort because we didn't believe in it. The only advice you can ever take is get out there and learn your craft and learn how to do things. And then you're gonna be hit with a hundred decisions every week. And you've got to treat those decisions on, first of all, on your principles. And secondly, on your gut feeling on how this will turn out, both for you and for the people around you. And you see, cause the, the way of record companies and managers is to let's get the lead singer out in the front and uh, have the band be a backing band. But we were a real band. And even though I was the lead singer and was 
maybe the first amongst equals sometimes because someone had to make decisions. But I never saw myself as any kind of a dictator or as a real uh, person you put out in front. In fact, in the early days, we uh, we used to stand six along on on the stage in a straight line. And I used to freak managers and record companies out because they wanted, you know, one person out in front and maybe two people at the side and then stretching backward. Sound came from organic means. It was Chris Byrne and I, Chris was a New York City cop. And think about that. You got a cop in the band and he's got a gun. <laughs> we had the only legal gun on stage most of, in the place most of the time. So Chris and I started the band and I was playing electric guitar and programming a, a drum machine. He was playing illin pipes and tin whistles and uh, the Bauron. And Chris was a rapper too, apart from being a cop. And I had come from the CBGB scene. So I brought the, the kind of punk credentials, I suppose. And so there was the two of us. And I had given up music before that. I was, I'd, become a playwright, um, but I was still playing in improv bands around the city. Um, and one of the people I used to play with, became one of my best friends, was um, Fred Parcells, who was this amazing trombone player from Detroit and could play anything, but particularly Latin jazz was his style. And yeah, you can hear a lot of those, those amazing horns, that whole horn section. In Black 47, it's very yeah. punky, punky reggae. Absolutely brilliant, deadly. Yeah. And then, so now we have an Illum pipe, Illum pipes and trombone. I remember the first time. Oh, so Fred sh just shows up one night. He heard I had a new band and he didn't know I'd ever any background in rock music or anything. He thought I was you know, another, another head from downtown who played improv all the time. So he thought it was an improv band. So he just walked in. Uh, one of our first gigs, and he sat down and he started playing. <laughs> he didn't know any of the songs we were doing, but he's such a master musician, he could play. And Chris is looking at him thinking, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and so Fred was with us for about six months before he became a, we didn't even ask him to join the band. He was just always there. So there was three of us. And then uh, I met Jeff Blyde's wife one day. She was an old friend of mine in a park and she said, Jeff has broken up with Dexie's Midnight Runners. He's here and he's gone nuts. And I said, well, send him up to Riley's. Uh, he can play with us. And Jeff arrived up and he said, well, I'll play. And I said, I don't know, man. <laughs> Sit next to the trombone player. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so then that was four of us and and sometimes Fred would go off to play with my friend Pierce Turner, and we needed four because we were getting paid for four people in the Irish bars at this point. So Thomas Hamlin, the, who had been a drummer with me in, in punk bands before, he had turned more towards African rhythms and uh, the djembe and shakers and stuff like that. As a, a replacement for Fred. So now we have uh, African stuff going on and Latin horns and rhythm and blues horns and punky reggae. And so it was very difficult for people to know what we were doing. On top of everything, I used to 
program that drum machine like the hammer different drum kick drums and mix them together so that the room would be shaken from the kick drum so much so that we didn't need to have a bass player because there were overtones coming off the uh the kick drum in these small rooms and fred and i we're both playing kind of bass notes a lot on the guitar and the trombone. So it was a huge sound and uh, nobody could figure out what it was. So the record companies never knew exactly what to do with us, except that, you know, I could write Maria's Wedding and Funky Kaylee that were obviously commercial and popular, as well as writing um, James Connolly and Chris writing Time to Go and songs like that. So we had a wide uh, spectrum of music to choose from. Yeah, Time to Go is a very hip-hop rap song. I really enjoyed that one. That's uh, very, you know, out, out of category. Like, it's one of these things where you're like, wow, you know, it kind of reminds you of Grandmaster, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, or even yeah, like uh, Public Enemy a little bit. Well, Chris is very into Public Enemy. Uh, I like them a lot, too. Uh, Chuck D was, was an inspiration. Uh, I, I have a show on uh, Sirius XM called Celtic Crush. So every now and again, I play Time to Go and it sounds as good to me now as it did, what would it be, 30 years ago. It, it holds up, you know, really. Something they cry, no fair. I 
know this much, this much I know People are dying, it's time to go like we got a little disconnect there was some kind of uh i don't think it's the connection or something it should be good now yeah it says recording in progress uh, all right let's keep going uh Larry, i was uh i was curious you know did you grow up like me with parents who played a lot of irish music but like myself kind of rejected it in favor of rock and roll until you until you're a little bit older did you enjoy irish music from birth always enjoying it always loving it well, it's it was different for me because I didn't come from an immigrant home uh, where people are trying to hold on to it. I was in Ireland, so a lot of a lot of parents in Ireland didn't like Irish music. They considered it old-fashioned, especially where yeah. I was from. You know, they wanted to become more modern, and Irish music was a, a thing of the past in their way of looking. And Wexford, where I'm from, was a very rock and roll town anyway, because it was the closest place to London in Ireland. You could get a boat from there and be in London the following morning, a boat, a train from Wales to London. So there was a huge amount of Wexford people in London. So right from the very start, whatever was popular in London was popular in Wexford a month or two later. So I had a different upbringing. I, I had to go find Irish music myself. I wasn't that keen on it at first myself either, but I began to see the value of it years later. 
Wexford wasn't a jigs and reels town. It was more, or county, it was more uh, the long form song. Like Shan Nose is, is the type in Gaelic, but in Wexford it was, it was in English and the songs would celebrate history and, um, you know, bat different battles and different heroes and different love affairs. So it was a way of recording history for people who didn't have the money to buy books. So I kind of had a different view of Irish music. And around the time I was, before I left Ireland, there was a folk boom at that point. And, um, Irish music became cool, you know, with bands like the Dubliners and uh, um, Emmett Spiceland and Planksty and the Bothy Band. Possible to like Irish music and be cool at the same time. And then, of course, there was progressive music and then there was punk. And uh, to me, music is all the same. I don't give a goddamn. It's like I like I like what I like out of it. I don't like one particular music. In Argentinian tango by Astro Piazzolla, as I am in anything that modern at this point. And uh, yeah, I got a lot of influences from Sean O'Reilly, the great Irish traditional composer. So I mix it all up. And I can still listen to any type of music. And I'd say that's was one of the hallmarks of Black 47 in that there were different styles of music and we all encouraged each other to bring out the, um, the style of music each band member liked and let's mix it in with something else. So we had a really wide vocabulary and, uh, and we had fun with it. Absolutely. A very moving song to me, Larry, was on the New York Town City about a priest who died on that tragic day in September 2001, uh, Michael. A really poignant tune that reminds you of all the courageous heroes who gave their lives in order to save lives, especially the firefighters. You did a phenomenal job with your book, Rockaway Lullaby, that captures his story so well and how terrifying that must have been to experience and how heroic so many New Yorkers really were risking their lives to save the lives of often strangers. Extraordinary, really. Was it really a hard subject to take in such a heavy duty subject as the nine 11 attacks? Well, the book's called Rockaway blue, by the way. Uh, though I like oh. Rockaway lullaby too. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I think I, I heard you. It, maybe it had a lot of Maybe did you do a tune Rockaway Lullaby recently? Maybe that's how I mixed it up. Because uh, I just read the book, and I yeah, guess maybe. I wrote the title down wrong. But I just read it and I was really blown away by it. It was a deep book. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I I wanted to tell the story of the regular people of New York because even in the first week after it. You could feel the politicians were taken over, Giuliani and people like that were, uh, and Bush, they were using the attack to go to war in Iraq. And of course, Black 47 furiously um, rejected that war and protested against it. Uh, it. It was a hard book to get right. 
that's what I found about it. You had you had to be fearless with it and go deep into your own feelings, and yet you had to be very not careful but aware that you were treading on sacred ground. So the idea was to tell the story. who died but of the people who survived <clears throat> and um, went on to uh, you know basically had to stay alive and and carry on and that that's what it was all about it took me many years to get it right uh, but when i finally did i was really happy with it and i'm happy with the book because i feel that it has captured the not just what happened but what new york was like before new york was a different place america was a different place before the attack after it we became fearful and pessimistic and well i can see the mess we're in now but it was a different place before the attack and it was an optimism and i wanted to capture that see the book is set as you know three years after the event. So it doesn't really deal so much with the event. The event is kind of a mountain that's behind the book all the time, but it deals with the people who stayed alive and had to carry on. That's the real story behind it. The real survivors. Yeah. Yep. I wanted, I wanted and to, to Sorry, you first. Yep. Well, to take it out of the patriotic thing that was spun around it, these are people's lives. They were interesting people. I knew a lot of them. And I wanted to, I wanted not to commemorate them, but to show that they had lives and they were independent of this tragedy also. I didn't want them just to be defined by it. I wanted to show days what these people were like <clears throat> before it gets too late. Because the longer you stay away from it, the longer you drift away from it, the more they become like statues and heroes. Yeah, and that's to, true. I wanted to show the flesh and blood of them. Great job, too. I mean, you really captured it. Thanks. A musician, Bobby Fuller, is chronicled in your rocking classic, Who Killed Bobby Fuller from the Home of the Brave. I've read so many conflicting accounts of this mysterious death of this young Texan. He was only 23 years old at the time of his death. Some have seen parallels to Sam Cooke's death to that of Bobby Fuller. Some are calling it suicide. Some are saying it was a murder. What's your opinion? I'd have to say... It was a murder because he wasn't the type of guy who was going to commit suicide. He had the world in front of him. He was also wasn't, he was a tough guy. You know, he, he had done a lot in those 23 years and he was finally breaking out, but he was connected with a lot of people who weren't the best people. Now, I don't know, but, if I was going to commit suicide, I wouldn't do it by drinking gasoline. 
<laughs> wow. Like, you know, because that's... I forgot about that detail. That's a pretty hard way to go. Yeah. It sounds much more likely to me that he, uh, he, he had gasoline stuck down his throat. And they buried him straight away. Uh, they didn't do an, an autopsy. The weirdest thing about that song for me is that for years after it came out, maybe about five years after it came out, I used to get phone calls from a guy in the middle of the night, a, a spooky kind of a guy. And it was always the same guy uh, who thanked me for getting the story out there and said there was a lot more to be told about it and that he would tell me. He said he was close to Bobby Fuller. And then he would hang up. Oh, I'm thinking, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he woke me up at <laughs> three in the morning, man. Sounds like and... a head case. <laughs> a lot yeah, of shady, a lot of shady are... details. There were a lot of shady people around Bobby Fuller. And um, there was a writer for USA Today, and I won't give her name, but she she had really researched it. So she got in touch with me too, and we became friends. And she was not sure what happened, but didn't rule out foul play with Bobby Fuller. Now, Bobby Fuller, most people would know Bobby Fuller now through The Clash. Clash recorded his big hit, I Fought the Law, uh, and did a great version of it. But Joe Strummer and I used to talk about it a lot. Strummer really fond of Black 47 and um, used to come see us. And he, he was an amazing character. He knew so much about music. And she was really taken with the song too because and if you look at the pictures of bobby feller and I look at the picture of joe they're not that unlike in looks um, but joe knew more more about music than pretty much anyone i ever met uh maybe david david johansson david poindexter or buster poindexter is the other person who is just a, an encyclopedia of music that i know but uh, yeah, Bobby Fuller, I, I'd forgotten about that song. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> Anytime. I, I think it must have been your absolutely brilliant book, Green Suede Shoes, that I read about how you, your first foray into music was with the new wave band, The Major Thinkers, where Land of, yeah. Land of De Valera was first recorded and performed with The Major Thinkers beginning in 1980, playing at CBGB's in Max's Kansas City, Really fascinating history. How much of an influence was the birth of punk rock and new wave in New York and on what Black 47 became in 1989 and later years? Oh, it was huge. Yeah, you got to remember I was living on East 3rd Street between A and B. It was the heroin capital of the world at the time. So, but if I walked directly across about three or four blocks from my house, there was CBGB's. And Hilly Crystal, the owner, was a friend. I met and, him. I uh, knew him. I knew him and his wife. Yeah. What was her name again? Oh, Jesus. Well, I was sister. He had a sister that ran things, Karen Crystal. Remember, I wasn't able to get in Karen. because you had to be 16 to go to the hardcore shows. Yeah. So 
we got a uh, birth certificate white out in yeah. a typewriter and we ended up to uh we tricked her into letting us in <laughs> for our first show was the agnostic yeah. front roger murray benefit january 2nd 1989 was my first cbgb's hardcore show Hard I remember, I remember crazy wild before. wild scene yeah well anyway it was a huge influence because uh oddly enough i was in a a band before that which you might have read about turner and Kerwin of wexford i don't know what i put it in the book but we were the first band to actually play in cbgb's um because we were friends of we were playing in a place called the bells of hell on 13th street and 6th avenue and across from that was the original cbgb's which is a little kind of blues bar acoustic blues bar and the rents went up and Hilly uh, moved over to the Bowery and he asked us to do a residency there for him. And we went over and opened a night, <laughs> a guy threw a knife <laughs> down, <laughs> down at the crowd. It was a men's shelter upstairs and a, a guy threw a knife down <laughs> at the crowd. So the word got out, this is not a safe place, which it wasn't. Yeah. It was a rowdy place, really rowdy. <coughs> By the time the hardcore, the hardcore scene kicked off, it became so violent that they had to cancel the whole scene for at least a year. People literally died there from all the, all the fighting, different street gangs and all of that. Oh, yeah. It was a rough oh, time. It was place. a wild time. But anyway, uh, yeah, CBGB's was a huge influence. I saw the Ramones first or their second gig. I saw Talking Heads first gig. Uh, but the big band in there was a band called Television. Yeah, television, I remember. Television had a huge impact on, on me and on most of the people who saw them. I mean, Blondie was there and, you know, all the other bands, but Television. Richard Hell. Richard Hell, yeah. God, I think he's still playing. And I don't know what Tom Verlaine's doing anymore, but uh, they were Richard Lloyd, too, wasn't it? He was another guitar player in the band. They were an amazing band because they could really play um, the hardcore thing. I'm not running down hardcore, but it tends to be driving chords, the same type of thing. Yeah. But television had um facility to play any type of music they wanted to and uh they were huge in europe and never really took off in the states they had some heroin problems there was a lot of heroin down on the lower east side at that point or there always is i would imagine still around but yeah. at that point it was everywhere i mean the lines used there used to be a line in front of my doorway at 179 east third street because it was a heroin store next door. <laughs> yeah, it's awful to be laughing at it, but the dealers and the pushers, they wanted good relations with the neighbors. So when I was trying to get into my door to get through the line, you know, there would be resentment because they thought I was jumping you know, into the line. But the, the pushers and dealers would come out with a rolled newspaper and beat the poor junkies out of the way saying let this man in he lives here not like you scum you know upside down there you know for a long period and that was it was 
it was a wild scene to move into from a small town in Ireland called Wexford, you know. I mean, I was worldly, so it didn't freak me out in any way. But when I think back on it now, you know, uh, you know I got such an intro to the black and Puerto Rican lifestyle of, of that area. And in many ways with the musical I'm doing right now here in Chicago, I'm drawn back on that world, you know, that, that I remember, you know, the, the five points was not unlike East third street between a and B. It was anything you got in the five points, man, you got it on you. So, you know, all, all your influences by being wild as a, as a younger person, they come to help you as a writer later on in life. I met her in the strand, reading books to beat the band. We got talking about the traffic of Capricorn. And all the things they're in, including sex and drugs and gin. So I asked her if she'd fancy a libation She said she didn't mind She was just out killing time Her husband wouldn't be home till the morning Is that a fact, says I I got the very place in mind So we went waltzing up down to the bells of hell and our brows raised when we stepped into the haze. Every blackguard at the bar was getting blasted and mentally undressing. My lousy sound our own fashion. I knew I was treading on disaster. I'm Malachi Meteor. What kind of joint you running here? There's a Give me the ones over My good man, have no fear That's a bishop from the county Clare Everyone's welcome down the bells of hell Lester Banks is on the floor And there's a couple of 7th Avenue whores Explaining life to Billy in the corner Dennis Duggan's in a suit And Nancy Whiskey's on the jukebox Peter Marsh is cutting loose Down the bells of hell Oh yeah, cha-cha-cha boys Like he's screwing a couple of banshees And a red-haired box with glasses Ah, he's beating the beat chases Ah, some poor innocent guitar That place was crazy They were singing the girl next door When my love said, oh, aren't they adorable? The red-haired one suggested 
to something intimate, but rather interesting. <laughs> Just send the bishop in a dress. Show me in a firm embrace. And I passed our cold down at the bells of hell. 13th Street Tango Gentleman. Tashes was moistening in my face Looking pleased as punch I could tell exactly what that fella been up to My love looked like a mess She was fixing up her dress Nick went to me and said Hey kid, you write a song about that Sunday when you're sober He was getting off a tongue She said I think my husband will be home <laughs> But thank you for such a literary evening. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Please come again. We all do the best we can. Everyone's coming down the bells of hell. I wanna go back down to the bells of hell. I'm Malachi, take me back down to the bells of hell. Without a doubt. Larry, I remember uh, you saying when I first interviewed, I interviewed after that big Black 47 gig with uh, Boston's The Gobshites at Connolly's in Midtown. When Black 47 was formed in the year of 1989, you were rocking the, bon you were rocking the Bronx at pubs in Woodlawn and other Bronx neighborhoods. I remember you saying it was kind of like the Wild West back then. Is that true? How tough was it coming yeah. up with such a unique sound at such a tough place back in 89, 90? Yeah, it was it was wild, you know, because there were a lot of tough hombres around there. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Just think of it this way: it, it's a, a totally changed world now. Yeah. Um, back in those days, that area was just full of Irish construction workers, guy who guys who'd come off the farm, you know, from the west of Ireland, you know, very little schooling of any sort and they came to new york and it was a cash economy so that we paid in cash so the um the bars were like the wild west because <clears throat> these guys would be up at six in the morning on the job at seven and then they'd get out around five to do as much overtime as they could to make money and then they'd come back up to the bronx Maybe, maybe they wouldn't get out till seven or eight because they worked like dogs. And then they'd go straight into the bar and start drinking. And then we'd start around 10 o'clock. Uh, they, they didn't want to hear any original music. That was the last thing on their mind. They might want to hear Christy Moore or if there were... The Saw know, Doctors. Saw Doctors, the, the Water Boys, they might have gone for a little U2 maybe. But we were saying, we're not going to play any of this shit. We're going to play our own. And that was revolutionary in the Bronx. So most people didn't like that. And to them, we weren't very good to start. You know, we were still 
trying to figure out how to play this music. The one thing we had that, that kept us kind of straight was we were playing to a drum machine that was that I had programmed myself and I was pretty good at programming in those days. And you know, there was a driving rhythm. So if I play an electric guitar on top of that, like Joe Strummer or someone like that, you know, you gotta drive right through it. And then Chris is playing, you know, great melodies on the Illin pipes. And you got Fred on the trombone. This is the early days when there were just three of us. So, you know, some guy from the asshole of Mayo or somewhere is really drunk <laughs> and he wants to hear a Christy Moore, he wants to hear a Christy Moore song or something that he recognizes. And he staggers up the stage, right? And he's, so was that the oh, guy that came is... up with a, he came at you and Chris had to pull out a gun at one incident. I remember you were saying. Uh, yeah, that was a different one. That was in Queens. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was a different one. But, uh, you know, I, I would never look at them. Because I knew, you know, you're not going to stop me in the middle of a fucking song, mate. You know, <laughs> get some fucking manners is my attitude to it. So I wouldn't look at him. And Chris had the, the coal black shades on. and he, he looks pretty menacing. Fred on the trombone, he never looked at anyone anyway. He never even looked at me or Chris. <laughs> so he so had three ignorant people as far as this guy with his request, you know, and he's been... To his point of view, he's been made a fool of. He's coming up to ask us for a song, and none of us will look at him. And that was <laughs> that was something that wasn't that wasn't done in the Bronx because you were supposed to look out for the the customer. Yeah, and yeah. But we'd come from CBGBs, or Chris had come from arresting some <laughs> drug dealer. So we were, <laughs> we were we were not sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Top of everything else, we have instructed the bartender to turn every television as we turned off before we start playing a note. So there will be a stalemate right at the start. Yeah. <laughs> before we play a note. Oh, um, yeah. uh, every night. Deadly. So when it came to being, when we had the hard times with the Iraq war, through a lot before that. So people coming up saying we were unpatriotic and things like that. It was very simple. Go fuck yourself. You know? Very punk rock. <laughs> That's a great way. Of, yeah, it's a great way of you know, finishing up an argument straight off. And then it's the best way to handle it. Song. Well, the other thing is I, you know, I had a number of songs that I could start on the guitar that were really driving and the would give the other guys you know, 10 seconds to get themselves together and then wham, we're all in together, you know? So, you know, we had our own weapons to use in, in these battles and, uh, you know, playing in the Bronx and like you were mentioning, <laughs> the guy in Queens. Child by fire. <laughs> uh, with Chris with the gun. <laughs> I won't get into it. <laughs> Well, some, some pretty some some pretty wild stories larry your bankers and gangsters is really one of the best cds ever it had so many unique and rebellious anthems like red you and rosemary nelson for those unfamiliar with the esteemed human rights lawyer rosemary nelson murdered on march 15th 1999 tell us a little bit about her courage and why it was someone you felt had to be remembered in song 
Well, I've always had that feeling that everyone deserves a song, but especially someone who's put their life on the line for civil rights. <clears throat> she was a, a lawyer and um, she took on unpopular cases and had been warned not to um, take on uh, Republican cases, but that was her, her business. And uh, she got killed for it. And it, there was a lot of people getting assassinated in the North at that point. And I thought it was only fitting to write a song about her because <clears throat> that could stand in for all the other people who deserved a song too. I'm surprised that, the, that her name has faded away so quickly. And I'm glad we wrote the song about her because at least with you asking the question, it means that the <clears throat> the song, um, you know, the song did its job. Yeah, it had a big impact for me. The reason, the reason why that that album had so many different styles of things on it was because it was the first album we did after. Iraq and Iraq was I think is one of the best black 47 albums but it was strictly about the war and about our fans who were over there fighting it and so everything I did at that point was to make Iraq as good an album as possible and to to you know to direct all the energy that was around at that point into the album and to leave it as a, a memory of what it was like back then. So anytime I put on that album, it's like, I'm back there. I'm back in 2004 or 2003 to through 2008 or whatever it was. Um, you know, purposely we didn't put any reverb or any effects on the album. So it's, it's raw and you know you can feel the battle overtones i was using a lot of um distortion on my guitars and whatever just to get that feel and so in the background i, I was recording different effects on the guitar not effects but um you know different sounds on the guitar itself but not using reverb or you know, echo or anything like that, just to get the echo of war itself. So then when we came <clears throat> doing the next album, I was free to write about anything I wanted to do. And it was just this great feeling that I could write about anything. And uh, hence, Bankers and Gangsters has a lot of different styles. I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't sure <laughs> it was that popular at first, but now people keep telling me it's one of their favorite albums by Black Forty Seven. Because I was thinking it at the time, yeah, it's getting time. To How are we going to finish up uh, uh, Forty Seven, and then after that, <clears throat> we were playing in Buffalo one night outdoors at a big festival and man i thought the band sounded great and on the way home uh when i was on stage i thought to myself you know maybe this is the time to get out when we're sounding really good to go out when you're ahead you know 
and I thought it would just pass, but I went back to the hotel room and uh, had a couple of drinks on my own rather than going to the bar. And, uh, and I thought it'll go away. And then, but the next day, Buffalo is a long drive back, about six and a half hours. And the whole way back, I was thinking, man, this this is the time to get out. And uh, I let it sit for about two or three weeks and finally I, each guy and uh, said what would you think you know and i already had a plan that we do another 15 months which would bring us to 25 years exactly and that we would go back and play every place we ever played in and give the owners you know a good deal on everything so everybody would make a bit of money out of it and we do a new album called Last Call to go out playing new music rather than be kind of like an oldies band. And that's what happened. And November 14th, we finished up in um, in BB um, King's on 42nd Street, which is gone now too. I think we got out at the right time. You know, 2014's Last Call you just mentioned, that really hit me like some kind of sonic thunderbolt. It was like an earthquake. It may be one of the best Celtic punk releases of all time, especially the song Ballad of Brendan B. And what was it about this legendary rogue, this this drinker with, uh, with writing problems that made you guys want to do this rocking, brilliant tune? Well, I'd always admired being, he was a really good writer, and he didn't drink all the time. And uh, it was just that he became more a name for drinking than for writing. And I've actually written a musical about him uh, that'll be coming out at some point. And I actually think that, that Brendan Bean died of fame, that he had to, you know, he's from a poor background and everything. and. He got all this attention um, and he couldn't live without it anymore. But I wanted to tell his story and that was the first attempt at it, the, the song on um, Last Call. Um, but since then I've written, I think, about another 20 songs about him or about his life or the events around him. Um, that is called the catacombs because that's where he first started to become literary it was a a basement after hours in murian square in dublin and um that's where the action takes place so yeah <clears throat> i was influenced i was influenced by being because he was like us he was a working person who was trying to crash out of that life and make a better life for himself through writing. And he was outrageous and um, he didn't give a fuck. And oddly enough, because I'm in both worlds in the theater world and in the, um, the music world, he's more, he's better regarded in the music world than he is in the theater world. So I go back in the play and I deal with his interest in music, in particular old Irish songs. 
And I took a number of songs that he wrote and then I've redone them. And oddly enough, these old traditional Irish songs sound very like Broadway standards when you treat them in a different way. So it's called the Catacombs, and hopefully I'll get it out in the next couple of years. Sounds good. Absolutely brilliant. Wanted to uh, ask, you know, this might be a little bit different, probably one of the last uh, questions about mm -hmm. climate change. A lot of people are saying that if we don't make a radical change with the way that we're trading the earth right now, mankind may not survive another hundred years. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a, a serious subject or do I sound like a tree hugger by asking such a question? <laughs> no, not at all. It's a, it, this is vital. The four years of Trump were a real setback because we're, we're down to counting years at this point. And the fact that nothing was done, in fact, that, uh, you know, certain laws were rescinded uh, that would have helped the climate change uh, or help battle the climate change. So we lost four years with Trump. And um, I think we're in serious trouble. I, mean, I see the, the effects of it um in climate all over ireland now can get really warm weather when i was growing up it was never warm there you can get long periods of um of drought almost in ireland jesus it rained every day when i was there yeah then those you crazy know, wildfires in the in the in the northwest uh, in northern california everywhere. you look around you and become aware of it I spent a lot of time in the pandemic up in on a beach in Connecticut and I saw the the change the animal life there and the bird life. There are far fewer birds or far fewer animals and uh <clears throat> it's coming, you know. You gotta do something about it and I don't see People are waking up to it. Uh, hopefully, the younger people will catch on to it because they're going to inherit this world. And uh, it's our faults so we've allowed it to be that way, but they, they're going to have to take up the, the, the guns uh, and change things because they're not going to have a world. Are they going to have a world that's going to be <clears throat> so intent on just stopping catastrophe that all the good things that have happened in the last 40 or 50 years will go away. Yeah? So I'm totally on your side. I agree. I mean, what you were saying about, uh, you know, the damage to the, to the, to, to the animal life and the natural world. I mean, it's just, it's obvious in places like in the, in the North and South pole with the glaciers melting and, a lot of, uh, I think it's the the emperor penguin that's endangered because for the first time it's an animal that's actually living in an environment that's not that cold anymore. Even in Antarctica, it's warming up. I think that's well, insane. <clears throat> well, salmon can't find our way back to Ireland and Scotland anymore because they've had to go so far north because the seas, they, they're like a... They like cool water and they've had to travel so far up north that they can't find their traditional ways of getting back. 
to the places that they were born in. And that's serious, man. Without you know? a doubt. Pretty heavy duty. Well, uh, Larry, I want to thank, yeah. thank, thank you. Thank, thanks a million for all of the brilliant music, the brilliant books, the plays, the musicals, and uh, for having time to do an interview with me. It's been absolutely an honor and, and, a, and a pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Rory. And uh, Paradise Square will be opening in the uh, on Broadway in February. So you should come see it. It's uh, the story of our people from... Uh, from 1845 on so brilliant absolutely yeah all right man well i gotta run to to rehearsal but it's a pleasure talking to you rory and likewise keep on rocking larry never yeah. never give up fighting never now, never brilliant, will. brilliant music brilliant plays brilliant books it's been it's been an inspiration me, to thousands millions even well send me on a link to whatever you come up with and we'll, we'll put it up on the black Absolutely. Thanks again. Take care. Keep on rocking. Pleasure, Rory. All the best. Bye.
glasses You got a young family and we're not Mr. Nice Guys One step beyond the pale, look at you, hear me Gonna end up dead, oh yeah, Rose Mary are so far ahead of them Look at you hear me Don't put your foot on that break by Rose 